Good day, friends. This is Reiko Zek. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. Today is day number 38. We're going to reflect briefly on Exodus 26 and 27 in Matthew chapter 25. So glad you're joining me. We're getting into some of the harder things in Exodus to read the the way that the tabernacle or the tent of meeting would be set up the way. And it's a pattern. If we remember, it's a it's a Moses is to make this as the pattern is in heaven. And so this uh, tabernacle in heaven, this, this place where God is, will come down to earth. God is going to dwell with his people. And so he tells Moses, what, what, will, what will you need in this tent of meeting? And so yesterday, we kind of start with the inside out, math, I'm sorry, Exodus 25. It starts with the very center of the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. It's also called a sanctuary. It's, it has like five different names as you read through. So it's a little confusing. What is it talking about? It's basically where God dwells. And in the last chapter, it started with the very inside out, which is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And later we'll find out there's three items that will be in there. But for now, uh, the description is of the covering. That's the, the focus, the covering of this box. And it's the same word for that we use for mercy seat or propitiate, cover, and on it are these cherubim, these winged creatures that are before God in heaven. And they are to focus on the place of mercy, this place that will be sprinkled with blood. And then from there will flow forgiveness from God. And of course, this is a symbol of Jesus, who is the one who will make propitiation or covering for our sins. Well, it starts there. That's the going to be, and it's not described a whole lot yet. It's, it's hard to, to figure it out. But as we keep reading, that's going to be the most holy place. That's where the, the high priest will go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then the, the next room out where the priest will go on a regular basis every day is called the holy place. Only priests are allowed to go in there. And what's described there is a table. A table where there will be the bread of the presence. There will be drink offerings. There will be incense burned as an aroma, pleasing aroma to God. And then there's also a golden lampstand that priests have to be able to see. This thing was big. It was like going to be made out of 75 pounds of pure gold. It's going to have almond blossoms on it. And I was just, I caught this, is that almond blossoms are the first to flower in the spring. So that's all yesterday. And then now we come to the, the tabernacle or the tent itself. And it is to be beautiful. It is to be, Moses describes, I guess God describes to Moses, exactly how big it is to be and how it will be covered with different layers. As you read this, you see that it's on the inside, it will have the finely spun linen with with uh, with cherubim angels in, in it. So the priest will, only the priest will see that. That'll be on the inside. And then it will be covered with goat hair. And then it will be covered, the third layer, this is chapter 26, verse 14, you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins. Say that one fast. Basically, ram's or, or goat skins that are dyed red will cover this whole thing. And then on top of that is some other leather. Perhaps it says in the ESV, it says goat skins. So there's four layers of this tent. And it's all built to move easily. Think of all the, all the, the poles and things like that so they can pick it up and move it so that God will continue to meet with them as they travel. 
Well, we get to chapter 27, and we see the very first thing that people would see when they walk into, into the whole tabernacle. So we'll just back up. There's basically a courtyard, and then inside the courtyard, there's a tent, and that tent will have two parts, the holy place and the most holy place. And it kind of, the dimensions are something like 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and there's a 30-foot gate. Uh, maybe it's a 20-foot gate with a 30-foot curtain that you have to kind of walk around. It's, it's tricky because it's in cubits, but you get the idea. The first thing you see when you walk in there, and this is in the court, this is outside, and this will be the case even with the temple. Later on when you read about the temple and the altar, the altar is not way on the inside. That's where the ark is, and that's where the whole the high priest would go once a year. But the altar, and later it's called the altar of, of burnt offering or whole offering, this is outside. This is in the court. This is this is where everyone can see it. Later on, it will be where all the people can be. They can be right there where the altar is, because the altar is essential for the the forgiveness of sins. And so, anyway, the the altar is described. It's all made out of bronze, and it's not small. It's seven and a half feet wide and long. It's four and a half feet high. It has these horns on it that. Uh, you know, describe um, the, a place where the animals would be tied to. Even later on, it talks about people running for refuge and, and holding on to the, the horns of the altar. So it, it will be there. It has a, a grill of some sort and all these tools made out of bronze. And it will be for the daily whole burnt offerings. And then it, and then it describes the court of the temple or the court of the tabernacle and then oil uh, for the lamps. Uh, that will be continually being burned. So uh, that's where you can see in our own church the way we've set it, things up. Very similar. There's uh, there's an eternal flame. There's an altar. Uh, there is sort of the different layers, the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. And then even on the outside, our, our church narthex or our entryway is sort of in some ways like the courtyard we have a baptismal font there, which is sort of the entryway. It's not described here, but later there is this, uh, what's called a, a bronze laver or a laver. I don't exactly know, but it's a, a place for washing outside in the courtyard that, um, that all the people would have access to. So in, in many ways, uh, this design that, that God gives Moses is replicated in many of our churches. In all of the details that we will read about the tabernacle and the way it is set up, and it's very, very precise, the thing we don't want to miss is this, that God wants to dwell with his people, that God is making the means to have fellowship with his people, his people who he knows, even as he's telling Moses this, are down below, and they're going to worship another God, this golden calf that they will make with their own hands. God knows that they will need atonement. God knows that they will need sacrifices to cover. And by that I mean things like Jesus and his body being referred to as the, te the temple. Jesus becomes the temple, John chapter 2. Also John 1, 14 that says, And the word became flesh. That's, that's Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word there for dwelt or lived among us, it's the word for tabernacled, tented. Just as the people of God will have the tabernacle in the wilderness so that God might fellowship with them, so in the flesh of Jesus, in his body, in Jesus himself, 
God tabernacles among us. He dwells with us. Wow, good stuff. That Christ is the sacrifice that will end all sacrifices. And God knows this. And so he's showing us from the way he's setting up the tabernacle is that what the tabernacle provides is a foreshadow of the real meaning that, that we'll get in Jesus. All right, so let's jump over to Matthew chapter 25. There's two parables that Jesus tells, and here he's only telling his disciples. This is He's up on the Mount of Olives. He has just told them you know, to be ready. Be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. It will not be in secret. Everyone will see it. And those who are not prepared, he says, will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn on that day. And so Jesus wants to really get this into the heads of his disciples. And so he tells them the story of the parable of of the ten maidens or virgins or, or bridesmaids. You have to kind of understand the, the culture that Jesus is talking about. He, you don't know when the bridegroom is going to show up. Well, where he does, does he show? Where does the bridegroom show up? He shows up at the bride's house. He is there with his family, and uh, he he goes there to to receive his bride. And then from there, the bride and groom together will process or parade, march back to his house with songs and dance, and it's very elaborate. And here's the thing with with Eastern culture, unlike American culture, where the wedding starts at 3 p.m. Be there, you know, 30 minutes early. That's just a given. In our culture, we're very time-oriented. In the Middle East, the culture is more event-oriented. And so there will be a wedding. That's that's what we know. And so Jesus, this parable reflects that. They don't know when. I, I just watched a show that uh, these gypsies were getting married. Not Not the same culture that Jesus is talking about, but something similar where you don't exactly know when the wedding starts. Just at some point, the bride will come to this place. Uh, the bride will arrive, and they're just waiting and waiting. Another thing is they don't know when the guests are going to come. It's because there's no set time, it's, and it's, it's also not during the day. It begins around 10 at night, and they're just hoping people show up. So just to give you an idea that the weddings that we see in America, it's not how it is throughout the world. And here with Jesus, it's, it's definitely different. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's telling the story about the ten maidens, the ten bridegrooms. I'm sorry, the, the ten bridesmaids, and some of them are well prepared for the whole night. They all fall asleep, and then unexpectedly, boom, finally, the groom shows up. He's there to get his bride, and and only five of the maidens have enough oil for the whole night to walk with their torches or lamps all the way back to the house of the groom. And five of them, well, they run out, so they, they go to get more, more oil. But they find out it's too late. What is Jesus telling his disciples? What is he telling us? We need oil. We have to be prepared. What is oil? I think it's all in the context of, of understanding that we have to hold on to faith even when it seems like the bridegroom is delayed. Even when it seems like, Jesus, where are you? He says, don't don't lose out. Don't run out of oil. Have enough oil. Well, where do we get that oil? We get that oil by looking to Jesus, by standing firm in the faith that he gives us. By If you look at, remember yesterday, in Matthew 24, he told us that things would be hard. He 
and I'm just going to go back to chapter 24, verses 9 and 9 to 14. These are the things that will happen to us. Tribulation, put to death, hated, fall away. We'll be among people who fall away, who betray us, who hate us. Uh, there'll be false teachers inside the church. Many of our others in the church will be led astray. Lawlessness will be increased. Love of many will grow cold. That's the things that the church will endure. And he says that's going to be commonplace. Those are the temptations that will, will come. The ones that are on the inside and the ones on the outside. Sometimes it's, as we see from the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13. Sometimes there will be people who fall away because of hard times. And sometimes there will be people who fall away because of good times. Jesus says, don't be either. Be the soil that is good by looking to me for what you need. So Jesus says, hold on. That's what he's saying. He says, be one of those maidens who have faith, who have oil. Hold on, even though it seems like a long time. For those who don't hold on, there's this word, truly, truly, I do not know you. Remember in Matthew 7, 21, there's, this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, uh, there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't even know you, right? You can't just say, that you do the will of God. You actually have to do it. You actually have to have faith. These are, these are very weighty words of Jesus that we want to take to heart. And he tells us in another parable. There's three dudes. There are three slaves, three servants, to soften the word a little bit. Well, two of them act like servants or stewards. One does not. One acts, I guess the word is rogue, reckless, lazy, unfaithful. Those are the words. You know this parable maybe well. We often think of us as being given talents from God. Wow, some of us have 10 talents. I'm good at all kinds of things. And some of us not so good at so many things. I don't have as many talents. But that word talent here in the Bible, it's it's used for an amount, a weight of either silver or gold. Likely silver here because verse 17, the word Talent is actually the word for silver. Other places, the word talent, it, it, it's probably worth, if it's silver, it's about 20 years worth of wages. So the one guy is given 200 years worth of wages. Wow, that is, that's pretty generous. Here, just go use it. Go do your thing. The other guy is given 10 years worth of wages, and the last one is given 20 years worth of wages. I wouldn't mind if someone gave me 20 years use of wages and, hey, go and this is my, this is my money. I entrust you with it and go use it. Use it for good. That would be a challenge, but it would be a fun opportunity. Well, it's fun for those who instantly, in fact, it says uh, the one who had five went at once and traded with them. He right away went and used it. And so likewise did the one who had two talents. But the one who had one talent, well, he didn't use it at all. He hid it. He was afraid. He hides it in the ground. Well, the master comes back, and that's what this parable is about. The master is coming back after a long time. Is it 2,000 years? We do not know. It might be 4,000. It might be, might be today the master comes back. Well, the one with five, he says, here, master, this is yours. Look what I made with it. And he says, well done. These beautiful words. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Now, the word faithful, obviously, 
it means you've done everything you're supposed to do, but it also means full of faith. I think these go together. The reason you can be faithful to God is because you can have faith in God. God is worthy of our faith. He is trustworthy. And so for us to become faithful, and we never are, but the the idea here is that we take what God has given us and we, with faith, look to him and then look to our neighbors. How can we use this these incredible blessings that you've given to us, how can we use them for your your kingdom? Knowing that you will come back, maybe today, maybe in two thousand years. How can we how can we how can we live faithful? I guess it's the, the question for us. Not an easy answer. But we do see here that the one with five and the one with two both were able to do it. And they didn't wait around all that long. They just got to it and started because they know their master. They know their master is generous and good, the opposite of everything that the the man that had one believed. The man with one believes that the master, as he says, is a hard man. And it becomes true. The master becomes a hard man to him because he has that's the God that he has. That's not the true God. Uh, he thinks that the master reaps where he did not sow. Really? I gave you everything. I was so generous to you. And he thinks the master gathers where he didn't scatter seed. And so he's afraid. And he went and hid the talent in the ground. See what fear does to us? Fear of uh, not believing the truth of who this master is, that he is good and generous. Look what it does. It makes us idle. It makes us hide. Hide what we, this enormous treasure we've been given and think that it's no treasure at all. In fact, it's a burden isn't it the opposite of what Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for my yoke, as he goes on and says, my yoke is, is light, my burden is light, my burden is lightness. I put this on you and it's lighter. You become, it's the only backpack in the world that you put on and you get lighter. That's what Jesus says, but this man doesn't believe it. And so uh, the fear drives him to to hide from God. Anyway, as the parable goes on, as you know, the one talent that he had is given to the others. Oh, let me also just say that in the kingdom, it seems like these these faithful stewards are given tasks, even in the kingdom to come, which is a beautiful thing. We're not just going to be lollygagging. We're not going to be sandbaggers, as my old coach would say, Coach Al. Anyway, we'll be given tasks. But for those who are not faithful, well, let me just let me just pause here and say this man, the identity of this last man, he's not a struggling Christian. We do see struggling Christians. If you read First Corinthians three, it says some build on wood, hay, and stubble. Yet in the judgment, that those works, those those efforts of of a life of a Christian will be burned up. You'll be saved, though, as by fire. That's what Paul says of struggling Christians. That is not, I don't think that's who Jesus is talking about here. This man is not a struggling Christian. For a struggling Christian, it says in Isaiah that a bent reed he does not break. A smoldering wick he does not put off, put out. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about encouraging the weak. This is a man who doesn't have faith. And like the others, it'll be exposed that he's been acting. He, he's a hypocrite. And I don't say that in a judgmental term. 
He's acting. That's what the word means. He's acting like a Christian. He's acting like a servant of God, but he clearly is not. And so he is put out into outer darkness. Now, think of the tragedy of this. The Son of God came from heaven. Why? To save sinners, to give his life as a ransom for all. And so it grieves the heart of God that some close the door of hell on themselves. They'll, they will be in outer darkness. This is the opposite of what Jesus came to do. Matthew chapter 4, he fulfills Isaiah, I believe it's chapter 9. Those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. The coming of Jesus is a great light and it is for everybody. That's also John chapter 3, right after the passage that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might be saved through him. But then it goes on and says, well, some hate the light and some love the darkness. Oh, Lord, change our hearts that we might be faithful. That is full of faith. Not believing that you're a hard and harsh man, but that you are good and generous, that you give to all and that your will for us is good. You want all to come to life. And that it grieves your heart when some close the door of hell on themselves. Let us be faithful stewards in this time. Well, there's more to think about and ponder, but we'll stop for the day. Thanks for listening. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.